when you hear the phrase, living the abundant life, your mind might go to some self-help book uh, about thinking positively or self-actualization or getting the most out of this life or becoming a more successful person. Or perhaps your mind goes to a tele-evangelist who has a, uh, an uncomfortably dark tan uh, in a white suit perhaps, with even whiter teeth and perfect hair, with a Rolls Royce parked in his 3,200-square-foot garage and his wife with equally large hair. Uh, I don't know what your mind goes to, but when I hear pastors talking about the abundant life, I'm thinking to myself, here we go, heretic. Uh, They don't always... uh, put forward the most faithful view of Scripture. But doesn't following Jesus lead to the abundant life? It sure does. God doesn't save people into misery. Um, But the truly abundant life surpasses a life of temporal health, wealth, and prosperity. Uh, None of which God promises His followers in this life. The abundant life could be filled with suffering, pain, persecution, poverty, disease, and self-sacrifice, yet it is filled with infinite and lasting joy and contentment because the essence of the abundant life is not primarily joy in what God gives, but joy in what God is. Living the abundant life is living to savor and treasure Jesus Christ above everything else. Everything else temporal, everything else in this life. It's being content where he leads you in this life, knowing that an eternity of endless pleasure awaits all those who follow Jesus anywhere. It's going to be important for you to keep your Bibles open to John 10. You need to keep looking at the text because we're going to cover some major ground this morning. It might get a wild, actually. Um, Who knows what will happen? It might raise more questions than you had before hearing this sermon, but that might be good because it might push you to go deeper into God's Word than you have ever gone before, to think maybe at levels that you've never thought before. So I want you to hang tough and look at the text. Now, John wrote this book so that you might trust Christ and have the abundant life in his name. It's very likely that John 10 is a continuation of John 9, the conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees at the end of John 9. John 10 begins with, Truly, truly, I say to you, which never begins a discourse for Jesus. It only ever continues one. John 10 is exciting because Jesus used a simple and yet very relevant uh, metaphor to teach some really deep doctrine, so we need to be ready to think this morning. John 10 is is an opportunity to rejoice in what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and to increase our joy in the abundant life we have in Christ. You will be challenged today, but I promise that there are glorious things to to behold in this text. So you have to hang tough and you have to think biblically. So let's do this thing. Jesus used simple and familiar metaphors to teach profound doctrines. 
He used simple and familiar metaphors. You might call this one in John 10 an allegory or an illustration or a symbolic discourse, as Dr. Kostenberger calls it. But whatever you call it, Jesus used a simple figure of speech to explain something profound about himself, uh, salvation and the abundant life. We have to mine out this text. You have to dig into it. But uh, I believe that what we gain from looking at this text is worth its weight in gold. Sheep farming was integral throughout centuries of Jewish life. Much of the wealth, if you remember in the Old Testament, of Israel was vested in livestock, part of which were sheep. So the metaphor as God as shepherd and his people as sheep is very familiar to the Jewish people for thousands of years. It still is relevant. Now, keep your finger in John 10 or put a little marker in there, but I want you to go back towards Genesis to Ezekiel 34. I want you to see this, Ezekiel 34. John 10 is a fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. So it's pretty important to see the connection between these two texts. We're going to move pretty fast, so I challenge you to look at Ezekiel 34 sometime this week. I think that will really help you. So to help you out, the sheep of Ezekiel 34 are God's people, and the shepherds are the leaders of God's people. And rather than than looking after the sheep and caring for the sheep, as leaders should do, uh, the leaders of Israel cared for themselves first, and that harmed the people. Verses 4 through 6 describe how negligent and cruel the leaders were. The people were weak, sick, injured, strayed, and lost, all descriptors of sheep-like people, and, and yet the leaders ruled them harshly. The people were scattered, and they had no shepherd to lead them, to seek them out. Then God stepped in. He was fed up with bad shepherds. God had a rescue plan, and he would seek after his sheep himself. Don't ever forget that the sheep don't seek the shepherd. The shepherd seeks the sheep. God said in verses 11 through 13, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have scattered I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them. Now this is going to help us later. Remember these three things. Number one, God is a loving shepherd that seeks out his sheep. God is a loving shepherd that seeks out his sheep. Number two, God brings his sheep out from the peoples and gathers them from the country. God brings his people out. He gathers them together from the countries. And number three, God cares for his sheep. He cares for his sheep. Verse 14 talks about God feeding his sheep with good pasture. It mentions grazing land and lying down and rich pasture, all descriptions of divine covenant blessings. Then God said in verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down. Isn't that awesome? God's going to be the shepherd of his sheep, and he's going to make his sheep rest and lie down and enjoy that. In verse 16, God will pursue and care for the lost, the strayed, the injured, the weak sheep, but notice he will destroy the fat sheep, the bad 
shepherds. Justice was coming. Blessing was coming. You see, God is the good shepherd. He would do what all the bad leaders of Israel failed to do. Now, before we leave Ezekiel 34, I want you to see an important concept from verses 17 through 20. Just look at 17 through 20. God promises to judge between sheep and sheep. Isn't that interesting? He will judge between sheep and sheep. God was identifying two groups within his people of Israel, fat sheep and lean sheep. His sheep or flock, the remnant, was here and all the other sheep, the unfaithful, were here. Two groups in Israel. God chose Israel from all the nations to put his particular love on, but he also chose to save a remnant of people from within Israel, a people within a people. Paul said in Romans 9, 6, not all who descended from Israel are Israel. What God is saying is that he would pursue and rescue his true and legitimate sheep from within the flock of Israel, and he would judge the rest. One more thing from Ezekiel 34 is a must-see. You have to see this. Verses 23 and 24. Are you ready for this? God said, And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Let me ask you a question. Does that excite you? Does that excite you? I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. David had been dead for around 300 years. Who was God talking about? He was talking about his glorious son, Jesus, the good shepherd. Jesus would feed and lead the sheep right into the abundant life. Now to John 10. Go back to John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. That is a great illustration for an agricultural people. Let's see if we can unearth the main point here together. Here's what I think you'll see. Jesus used sheep farming to explain salvation. Jesus used sheep farming to explain salvation. Sheepfolds or courtyards were enclosed by tall rock walls, sometimes attached to homes, and typically they didn't have any roofs, where several families or shepherds kept their flocks all together in one sheepfold. Shepherds hired a night watchman to oversee the security of the sheepfold while they slept because sheep were valuable and they wanted someone to watch over and to protect them. When morning came, each shepherd went in and he was authorized Okay, by the gatekeeper to call to his sheep and to bring his flock out from the sheepfold. He was authorized to be there 
He was recognized by his sheep and the gatekeeper, and he led his sheep out to graze for the day. Does that make sense? Now, if you came home late one night and you pull into your driveway after a Christmas party, let's say, and you look over at your neighbor's house and you see a a man dressed in black climbing in the second-story window of your neighbor's house, would your first thought be, oh, Bill must be coming home from his work party? No. My guess is that you'd think, I wonder what the police are doing right now. Why don't we give them a call? And you, you, you'd beckon them to come. You see, neighbor Bill has keys to go through the front door. Burglars don't. They use windows. Jesus said in verse 2, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The shepherd has authority to enter into the sheepfold and to call to his sheep. He enters by the door. He doesn't inconspicuously climb up the back back wall in the darkness. Anyone who jumps the wall is a thief. They shouldn't be inside. The The Jewish leaders were the thieves and the robbers. Now, how do we know that? Well, they opposed Jesus at every turn. They just constantly fought him. They refused to believe in him, and they lacked the true authority to lead and care for God's people with the truth. Don't we see that? Haven't we seen that in John, just the constant fighting of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders against Jesus? They were not thinking in the best interest of the sheep. They were not thinking in the interest of the truth. They were not thinking about following Jesus. They were harming the sheep. One example of that was their great threat to excommunicate anyone who confessed Jesus as Christ. So the sheep are God's people. The door is the shepherd, Jesus. The thieves and robbers are the Jewish leaders. What's the sheepfold then? Well, jump down to verse 16, John 10, verse 16. This is the only other place in John where sheepfold is mentioned. And Jesus mentioned sheep from another fold. Now, wait a second. There are two folds. I'm confused. I'm not really confused, but you might be. Yeah, there are two folds. And that's a big clue about what the sheep fold means John, uh, in the first few verses of John 10. From what two folds does Jesus bring sheep to form one flock to lead? How about Jews... And Gentiles. Does that make sense? The sheepfold in verses 1 through 5 is Judaism. It's Judaism. Jesus has the authority of God to go into Judaism and bring his sheep out to save the remnant chosen by his grace. You see the parallel to Ezekiel 34 and what's going on here? Jesus was showing his supremacy, his sovereignty as the Messiah. He had the right to go in and lead his sheep out. Jesus holds exclusive authority over God's sheep to rescue them and to lead them out into the abundant life. Jesus went deeper, though. Inside of his explanation of salvation, Jesus also used sheep farming to explain the doctrines of election and effectual calling. The words election and effectual calling are doctrinal words. There's no way around it. They're biblical, but they're doctrinal. This is deep stuff. But I don't want you to be intimidated. I don't want you to turn this off. If we understand even a little bit about election and effectual calling, 
John 10 is likely to explode off the page in a very fresh way for you. These two doctrines actually fuel our joy in God. So this is really important that we establish these two things. Election first. Election in the Bible means to pick out, to choose, or to select. Deuteronomy 7.7 is a great example. Moses told Israel, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. He set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. God set his particular love on Israel out of all the nations. He chose Israel from all the nations. Why? Verse 8 says, because God loved them. God loved them and wanted to keep the oath he had made to the patriarchs. So God's election of Israel was based on what? His love. Not on the superiority or the greatness of Israel. Not based on anything that Israel did to earn his election. It's because God loved them. That's why. Now, here are a few more examples of God's election. In Acts 9.15, God elected Paul to be a preacher of the gospel. In Romans 9, God elected and loved Jacob, not Esau, so that his purpose of election might continue. That's a direct quote. In Romans 11.5, God was faithful to Israel and preserved a remnant that was chosen by grace, by God's grace. Paul eventually called that remnant that God chose the elect. The rest of Israel, Paul mentioned in that passage of Romans 11, were hardened and did not receive God's salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul told Christians, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen, or you could say elected, you. In 2 Peter 1.10, Peter wrote, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your what? Calling and election sure. Jesus told his disciples in John 15.16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you. He also told them that he chose them out of the world. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We have to understand, it's God doesn't choose us because of something that we did. He chose us before anything was even created. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says that God chose the Thessalonians as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And we're only scratching the surface, folks. God's sovereign election is throughout all of Scripture. The second doctrine is effectual calling. A fancy title, really, for God's personal and particular summons of his people to come to Jesus, and his call is always effectual, or you could say it's always effective. It always works. When God effectually calls, his sheep will absolutely come. Now, effectual call is different from the general call of the gospel. 
where God calls everyone to repent of their sins and believe in Christ. The general call of the gospel goes to everyone. He calls and commands everyone to bow the knee to King Jesus, to repent of their sins, and to come to Him. The general call of the gospel goes to everyone, but the effectual call goes to only those whom God chooses to save. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines effectual calling this way. The work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. You notice in that definition, the offer of the gospel is different than the effectual call of God actually drawing his sheep. Now, the question is, who cares what the Westminster Confession of Faith says? What does the Bible say? Right? Is this biblical? Romans 8, 28 through 30 famously say this. Listen very closely. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's effectual calling. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, that's effectual calling, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, please understand why effectual calling is different than the general call of the gospel. Notice in Romans 8.30 that everyone who is called is subsequently justified and glorified. So let me ask you a fair question. Is everybody that was ever born at any time throughout history saved and guaranteed to go to heaven? That's not what the Bible teaches at all. There are some who will go to heaven. There were some who will go to hell. And we know that not everyone is saved and glorified, so you have to back up and say, therefore, not everyone is called or effectually called. Here's John 10, 3 and 4. Listen for election and effectual calling. The sheep hear his voice. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Is the shepherd's call a general call to all of the sheep in the fold? No. It clearly says he calls his own sheep by name. It's not a general call. It's a particular, unique call for each sheep. The word idia is carefully used Twice, it means his own. To say he calls his own implies other sheep. Other sheep that are not his, that he does not call, which makes sense considering that in the first century, a lot of different shepherds put their sheep in one fold and they would come and just grab their sheep and lead them out. This all makes perfect sense with, with his analogy. 
The shepherd has a unique and intimate call to each of his sheep. Think about that. He calls his sheep by name with a personal and effectual call, and he brings each one of them out. All of his sheep follow him willingly. Now, I I took uh, Jeremiah and Peter to a game dinner on Friday night. That's not Monopoly. That's meat. I like meat. And so we went to this uh, meat party, if you will. A bunch of kids were playing downstairs, and it was time for us to go. And so I went and opened up the door to the basement, and I called down, Jeremiah, it's time to go. I was not asking for all the kids in the basement to come and huddle in my minivan to go home with me. That would have been a disaster. I was calling Jeremiah, my son, whom I know and I love, to come with me to go home from the awesome meat feast. Anyway, has God, has God really given some people to Jesus and not others? Is that what you're saying, Pastor? Well, it doesn't matter what I'm saying. We got to look at the text and see what Jesus and John are saying. Consider John's review for us. We've gone over some of these critical verses before. Consider John 6.37. Jesus said, All, all, not some, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Those who don't come have not been given. That's why they don't come. Can you see that in the text? Consider John 6.44 where Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We went over that weeks ago. If God doesn't draw, they don't come. Consider the next verse, John 6, 45, where Jesus said, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Only those who hear and learn come. Consider John 17, really the whole chapter, where Jesus mentioned multiple times that God gave him certain people. You could say sheep. So in John 10, 3 through 4, the sheep follow Jesus because God knows them, has given them to Jesus, and Jesus effectually calls them to follow him, and they do right into the abundant life. That's God's sovereign grace. That's one of the core values here at Jerusalem Church. Sovereign grace. This is what we mean. That's how God saves people. Now your head's really going to spin. If it's not already, it will now. If the Pharisees didn't believe and follow Jesus, and just, just read the book, and you're seeing they didn't, then did the Father give them to Jesus? Were they God's sheep? Is everyone God's sheep? Jump down to John 10, 26, where Jesus answered this question. Jesus told the Pharisees directly, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. The word order is really important there. Why didn't the Jewish leaders believe? God didn't give them to Jesus and they weren't part of his flock. They didn't hear the shepherd's voice. They didn't follow him out. Jesus didn't go before them. Jesus didn't lead them and bring them out. Jesus didn't effectually call them by name because they were not his sheep. One more verse. 
In John 8, 47, this is a review as well. Jesus said, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Why don't some people hear God and respond? It's because they're not of God. They're not of God. They're not his sheep. But when Jesus effectually calls his sheep by name, they hear and they come with joy. They follow him because he knows them by name. Are you following Jesus? If so, I want you to rejoice in a couple things with me. This will just encourage you so much this morning. Number one, Jesus called you by name. He knew you before and he called you by name. An intimate, unique, particular call for you. Number two, you are his. You belong to the shepherd. Number three, he has led you out from a life of sin into the abundant life. That abundant life is yours. Number four, you are part of the flock that Jesus will always care for. He won't turn his back on you. You are precious to him. And number five, where Jesus leads, you will gladly go because you know the voice of God and you follow his appointed shepherd. Could anything be more wonderful than John 10? I think you'll like verse five too. The voice of Jesus gives discernment to his sheep. Discernment. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. They don't recognize the voice of a stranger. They recognize the voice of their shepherd. The sheep follow their shepherd, not some stranger. If you know the voice of Jesus, if you can hear, if you are of God, you won't follow some weird cult leader or some next new book that comes out and you're like, ooh, pretty things in here, and you go off the beaten path of orthodoxy. That won't happen to you because Jesus will keep you. You're going to have good doctrine or theology, not perfect, but solid biblical doctrine and theology when you know the voice of the shepherd. God gives biblical wisdom and discernment to his people. He gives the Holy Spirit to his sheep, and they're safe. So so the exhortation is flee from bad teaching. Go to biblical teaching and dig deeper and deeper into it because Jesus will protect you. That's verses 1 through 5. And when the Pharisees heard this metaphor, verse 6 tells us that they were utterly confused. They did not know what Jesus was saying and the deeper meaning of his metaphor. Jesus shifted the metaphor now. So you, so you really have to pay close attention to all the details of the metaphor because right here after verse 6, he starts to shift things in meaning. He talks about them in a different way. And so now it's not... Um, being led out of the sheepfold, now he shifted the metaphor to entering the sheepfold, meaning entering into the people of God, entering into eternal life, entering salvation. So verses seven through 10 go like this. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly or have it to the full. 
The sheepfolds in the country were different than the ones in town that were attached to the homes. They were rock wall structures with no doors. So guess who acted as the door? The shepherd. The shepherd would put himself in the door. Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. He was telling them that he alone is the entrance into God's people. He alone is the entrance into eternal life. He was talking about salvation, and we know that because he said, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. That's salvation. Jesus is the only door to salvation. If you want to be saved, you have to go through Jesus in faith. You must enter through Jesus. There is no other way. He is the only door. Now, verse 8 references thieves and robbers again, and this may be referring to false messiahs or these imposters that set them up as the Christ and, and Messiah, but I think likely it probably means the Jewish leaders again. Verse 9 gives the motives of the thief to steal and kill and destroy. So every other leader or philosophy or worldview or religion that opposes Jesus, that goes against Jesus, only is coming to steal, kill, and destroy. It is not to be trusted. Jesus is the only thing that, that, that helps us make sense of what is going on around us in this world, to make sense of eternity, to make sense of our lives. You see, people follow all kinds of, of whacked out functional saviors that they trust in. They just get confused with stuff and it leads them right into despair, destruction, and sometimes even death. Certainly eternal death, it happens all the time. If we want to live the abundant life, the full life, all that God has intended for us, we must obtain it through the only shepherd that can lead us into the abundant life, Jesus Christ. There's so many people, you know them, you can see it in their eyes, you can see it in their life. They're abused, they're destitute, they're beat down, and they're lost. I mean, just lost people everywhere around us that have no shepherd. And And they have everything. That's the other weird thing. They have all that money could buy. They have all the possessions. We live in the Disneyland of the world here in America. What more could we possibly want? And yet, are they happy? No, they're not happy. You can see it. You can hear it. You can experience it alongside of them. You're just not happy. How they would flourish. How they would thrive under the care of the shepherd. Come to the shepherd and be cared for. If you want the abundant life, how do you get the abundant life? I think you're all with me where you would say, I want to live a full, abundant life. I don't think any of you just, I want to be miserable. All my life, don't even talk to me right now, I just want to sit and be miserable. I just don't think we think that way. We want to have the abundant life. So leave the dry and barren wasteland of your sin and follow Jesus into the plush, green pasture of the abundant life. Jesus is the abundant life. Jesus is the life. Twice Jesus said, I am the door. Why? He wanted to make sure he was heard. He made the point that he was the only door, that no other door leads to the abundant life. Jesus is not a step to the abundant life. Jesus is the abundant life. 
savor these words, Jerusalem church, and consider their implications to your life. Jesus promised you, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Do you want to live a full life? A joyful life? a happy life, a meaningful life, a purposeful life, then you must enter through Jesus by trusting Him alone for salvation. If you trust Him, you will be saved. He will come through. In fact, you will go in and out and freely find pasture. Sheep go in to find protection. You come to Christ, Jesus will protect you. He will watch out for you. And, G- and, and sheep come out to go graze and to have a great time, to get fat and happy. That's what they go out for. You come to Jesus, he will enrich your life in a billion different ways that you'll be experiencing for eternity. Sheep go out to graze and grow, and Jesus leads them there to green pastures of truth and joy and contentment in him. Jesus leads you to graze upon the glory of God and find the abundant life in just knowing God. The pasture is where the sheep grow and enjoy and have smiled. Do sheep smile? I don't know. That'd be kind of creepy, actually. <laughs> Deuteronomy 28.6 says, Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Why did Jesus come to the lost sheep of Israel? He came to lead them to life, but not just to lead them to life. He came to lead them to the abundant life, that that they would have joy. Jesus said to the 12, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be what? May be full, may be complete, may be abundant. Jesus came to give God's chosen people a life completely filled with joy in him. Can you say today that your life is filled with God joy, that you are complete? Follow Jesus into your utmost happiness and gratification. Folks, I understand I am right with you. Every day does not feel zippity-doo-dah. It just doesn't. And we've got messed up stuff and we're like, I don't even feel joy today. But overall, in your life, you should be able to look at the divine blessing of God, the divine grace of God and say, I am truly and completely filled in God. Yes, I'm struggling. Yes, I'm wrestling. But I know one day, because of his promises, I will be with him forever and he meets me where I am in eternity to usher me into divine and everlasting joy that has no end that is completely full. One study note I read said something really cool. I hope it blesses your socks off. This is what it said, quote, Jesus calls his followers not to a dour, lifeless, miserable existence that squashes human potential, but to a rich, full, joyful life, one overflowing with meaningful activities under the personal favor and blessing of God and in continual fellowship with his people. Isn't that what you want? A meaningful life? And then you got brothers and sisters and other sheep walking through with it, and you're like, this is great. We're following the shepherd together. We love each other. We're fellowship with each other, and, and, and we're just following the, the, the shepherd. Wherever he leads, we'll go. I want that. And you know, I can say honestly, God has given me the abundant life. I have the abundant life in Christ and I'm so thankful. My life is far from perfect. 
I, I just, this week was not particularly good. You know, I hope you don't mind it. Christina and I were on the one day, and I'm like, oh, man. I was in a crabby, I just, it was off, you know. But I'm thankful I have the abundant life. It doesn't, it's not a perfect life, but someday it will be with Jesus. How about you? Are you thankful? Do you have the abundant life? I want to go out with a bang, you know. That's how I want to end these sermons. Boom! The blessing of God. And so, would you rejoice? I'm, I'm asking you to rejoice with me. Let's read this a little differently. I'm going to put it up here. We're going to read the 23rd Psalm because I think you're going to like what it has to say. But I want to do this with a bang. So, would you just stand? And, and I want to excitedly read this and rejoice at the words of Psalm 23. Let's do it together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my 